0: Wow, that was fantastic. Well, it is His power and His glory that we want to evermore proclaim tonight. And uh, if we fail to do that, we have failed, but uh, let us not fail. You know, one of the great privileges that I've had the last couple of years is to lead some tours to Israel, to the Holy Land. And I've had the thrill to do it with a good friend of mine here in town, another pastor friend, and he gathers up a group of people from his church, and we gather up a group of people from this church, and then together, sort of as one big group, we fly all the way over there, and then we go on this incredibly amazing spiritual journey together. And those of you who have gone with us know what I'm talking about. And one of the places that you visit inevitably on this trip, I've been there three times now, is the little town of Bethlehem. And I will tell you, it's still a little town. Now, it's a significantly bigger town than it was when Jesus was born there, but it's still small enough to put a wall around. Do you know how I know that? There's a wall around it. It's about 20 feet tall. It's made of solid cement. It has barbed wire and surveillance cameras. Bethlehem today is under the control of the Palestinian Authority and as a result of the conflict between the Israelis and the Palestinians, the Israelis have literally put a wall around Bethlehem complete with one way in and one way out, a checkpoint with Israeli soldiers and machine guns. Now, if you're thinking you don't want to go on the trip the next time we go, please understand this is the only place we see this, but do understand we see it there. And if you're not prepared for that psychologically, you know, I mean, it undoes you a little bit because you wake up in the morning and you're thinking, okay, this is way cool. You don't even need coffee that day because you're going to go see the place where Jesus Christ was born, the transcendent God who spoke the worlds into being enters into humanity clothed in infancy, and, and you're going to go see the place. So if you're like me, you're like, you know, first on the bus. I mean, you are jacked up and ready to roll. And so everybody finally makes it on the bus, you know, and you go. And I mean, it's only five miles away from Jerusalem where you're staying. And so you're driving along and your tour guide is talking along on the microphone as you're going and you pass by these fields are on your left side as you're heading toward Bethlehem. And your tour guide said, no, those are the fields where the shepherds saw the angels. Those are known as the shepherd's field very nonchalant. I'm like, shepherd's field! It's amazing! They also happen to be the fields of Boaz. So if you're familiar with the story of Ruth, then you know that that occurred there as well. Really? It's incredible! So I'm psyched! It's Bethlehem. And we go past the shepherd's field, and we pull up and I'm seeing 20-foot walls and barbed wire and surveillance cameras and guys with machine guns in one checkpoint. And I'm thinking, this does not look like Bethlehem to me. <laughs> and here's the deal. If your bus driver is not kind of pre-approved by the PLA, well, now not only do you have to... I mean, you got to get off the bus, your bus... So you pull into the checkpoint, everybody off the bus. Now, everybody gets off the bus. You leave your bus behind, your driver behind, your guide behind. These people become like family to you. And you get on a Palestinian bus, Palestinian driver, Palestinian guide. Time out for a second. Absolutely beautiful, wonderful, marvelous people. Who so appreciate that you are there but you're an American. You know, you've seen all this stuff on the news and all this jazz and you don't know anything about them. So you get on the bus and now you're going to go through the checkpoint and you're leaving your bus behind and you're going, ah, and you're thinking to yourself, A, this does not look anything like the little town of Bethlehem that I grew up thinking about, dreaming about, reading about and watching, you know, cartoon movies. And B, is this really a good idea? Am I safe in this place? Short answer, Yes. But you're consoling yourself and your anxieties with the fact that you're going to get to the church of the nativity, and then you're going to see the place where God entered into humanity as a baby. And that's a consolation prize. So you're cruising down the street. You don't have to go very far. It's small. Maybe a mile, maybe and you pull up to the church of the nativity, everybody off. So now you get off and you walk across this courtyard and you're going to enter into the church. Okay. And if you've been there, you know, the doorway is about four feet tall. It's called the humble door. If you're going to enter into this place, you're going to bow to do it. So you bow and you enter into the humble door and, you know, I mean, I grew up in the Protestant tradition and so I'm now entering into this ancient church that doesn't look like anything that I've ever seen before and all kinds of stuff and all, you know, and I'm thinking, okay, this is not the Bethlehem that I dreamt about. This is not why I skipped my coffee. This is not... But you're consoling yourself with the fact that there's this little staircase and you're going to walk down that staircase into the cave or actually just the part of the cave where the transcendent God of the universe who spoke the stars and the worlds into being entered into humanity as a baby. So you wait in a really, really long line for a really, really long time, and you're psyched because you're going to go into the cave. I said cave, right? Not barn, not stable, at least not in the sense that you think of it. Jesus was born in a cave, and it's not a barn like, you know, the red painted barn and the tin roofs and the stuff you see in rural North Carolina. It's not like that. It was a cave that was used to house animals. And surely they haven't done anything to that, right? You descend the stairs, you enter into the cave. And I'm just going to give it to you from my vantage point. It may have been, that spot might have been the single awesome, most amazing thing that you had on your trip. I entered into the cave expecting to see a cave. I'm thinking, you know, it's going to be a cave. They have preserved this in its authentic state because, I don't know, it seems like that would be the thing to do. That's where Jesus was born. And you walk into the cave and you look up, you see, and there's no cave ceiling. The cave ceiling in this part of the cave has been completely excavated. The ceiling is the floor of the church where you were just standing. That was a little downer for me. You look around for the cave walls. They're covered with these kind of decorative, ornamented things. You look down for the cave floor. You're standing on a man-made floor. I'm thinking, wow, you know, all this stuff hanging everywhere. I just... I had no category for this. And so then I walked over to the place where the Lord himself, at least allegedly, actually was physically born. And there's sort of this marble circular floor thing. And on it, there's this 14-pointed silver star. And in the center of the star, there is a hole about four inches in diameter. And here's the deal. You can squat down... And if you're not a germaphobe like me, you can take your hand and you can put it in the hole very carefully so as not to touch any of the sides, and then you can touch the floor of the cave where the Lord was born. And then you can put a lot of Purell on your hand and all that kind of stuff, but I only could bring myself to do that one out of the three times that I've been. I figured I've done it once, that's it. But it's not what I expected when I got up real excited in the morning. And I remember thinking, look what we've done to this place. And then that's it, you know. And so for me, it was like, wow, Bethlehem was the most disappointing. In fact, the only disappointing, stop on the whole deal. And that's going to be your experience too, if you're like me, unless you have a guide whose name is Ibrahim. I love Ibrahim. He's been our guide the last two times. This guy is like full of the joy of Christmas, and he lives Christmas. Every single day of the year Think about that for a minute I mean And yet he's never lost his joy and excitement for it And Ibrahim's a little bit sensitive to the fact that Ah maybe this is the way you're processing this So you go down into this staircase You go into the grotto is what they call it That part of the cave where Jesus was born It's walled off from the whole rest of the cave complex You come up another staircase And there's Ibrahim Big beaming smile And he's waiting for you And he gathers up the whole group While I'm dealing out the Purell Because I don't want to shake hands with you later All right might touch the same railway. It freaks me out. And he says, okay, guys, before we leave, there's one other place I want to show you. And he takes you from the Greek Orthodox part of the church through the Armenian part of the church into the Roman Catholic part of the church. And he takes you to another stairway. And it's one of those staircases that kind of goes down, and then there's a landing, and then it takes a left. So when you look down it, you can't see where it's going, I mean, and it looks totally innocuous. There's no signs. There's no thing that says, don't go down here. There's no really long line of people waiting to get in. And he takes you down that staircase, and where it leads is into the cave in which the Lord was born, except the grotto is sealed off. You understand? It takes you down into the cave complex that they sealed off from that little location where Jesus was at least allegedly actually born. And the most awesome part about it is you look up and you see the big, tall, sloping ceiling of a cave. Look around and you see the walls of a cave, modified a little bit to be sure, but look down, what are you standing on? One guess. Floor of a cave. And the acoustics are unbelievable see in that place, if you have any kind of imagination at all, all of a sudden it starts coming alive for you you know I mean you realize hey wait a minute i 'm standing where mary stood i 'm standing where joseph probably i mean Joseph probably would have run over me to run out to get a bucket of water and come back and then to run out and get some linens or whatever it is that he 's looking for and to come back i 'm standing where the cows stood and, 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 and where the sheep stood and where the horses stood and where the mice went shooting across the floor. You can hear it. You can smell it. You can feel it if you enter into it. You can hear the moaning of a little 14-year-old girl, 80 miles from home, with her 16-year-old husband, delivering her first child can hear the echoes of the cries of the transcendent God of the universe, so big and so small. And in that moment, Ibrahim, who totally gets it, said, okay, guys, why don't we sing? And we sang, joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her what? Her king. And I didn't want the song to end. It's magnificent. See, in that moment, Bethlehem went from the only disappointing place we went to, and it was profoundly, to me at least, disappointing till that moment, to maybe my favorite. Why? Because that was real to me. That was authentic. I could see and smell and hear and taste and touch that. I stepped out of what we, with the best of intentions, to be sure, have sort of made of it into what it really is. And my prayer all week is that right now, that that will be your experience. That somehow God, by His Spirit, will work the miracle that we need, frankly, for Him to work to enable us to step out of what we men have made of Christmas with the best of intentions. I'm not knocking anyone, but where we've taken real people, real places, real events, a real king. And what is the role of the king in the Bible? It is to save. That's the king's job. It's what the king does. We've reduced them down to these plastic figurines that, you know, once a year we got to dig out of our garage and and we literally bring to life ourselves by plugging into a wall, and instead, that just even if it's for a moment, that God would allow us to step into the real Christmas. Real people, real places, real things, real events. Real king who really saves and who has the power to bring us to life. That's the gospel. That's the way he works. So Luke tells us this story of the birth of Jesus that we're going to look at tonight, and he begins the story, interestingly, with a king, but not with King Jesus. He begins with Caesar Augustus. And part of the deal when you come to this story is Luke's going, hey, Caesar Augustus, right at the beginning of the story, and he is assuming that you are bringing all kinds of information about Caesar Augustus to the story. So he doesn't give you that information for free. It's kind of like, no, I just figure you all know all about Caesar Augustus. Here's the problem. We don't all know all about Caesar Augustus do we? His name is actually Octavian. He was born the grand-nephew of Julius Caesar. He was adopted by Caesar as his son and sole heir to the throne, which means what, practically speaking? It means that he was born in a palace and not a cave. It means that he was born to royalty and not to peasants. It means that he was born amidst the sound of trumpets and the smell of roses and not the neighing of, you know, horses and the smell of manure. It means that he was wrapped in the finest garments the world had to offer, and not in swaddling clothes, and he was laid in a crib of gold and not in a feeding trough full of like the freshest hay that they could, you know, kind of dig up. How does that look over there? Oh, that's, this looks like some clean stuff. Stick that in there. And it means that when Julius Caesar died, then Octavian, Caesar Augustus, became the king of the world. The king of the world. And what a king he was. He was given the name Augustus by the Roman Senate. Do you know what Augustus means? It means honored one or revered one or majestic one. And here is the really profound part of the deal. This is what's significant about this is that prior to its application to Octavian, the name Augustus was only used in reference to the gods. Now, hang on a second, because what does that mean? That means that he is a man who is revered as a God. He's a God-man, isn't he? Archaeologists have found inscriptions referring to Caesar Augustus as a son of the gods and as the savior of the world. Fascinating. Sound familiar? He ushered in a time of peace and prosperity, a new world order, as it was called, that he himself labeled. I'm going to give you the Greek name. Okay, stay awake. All right. It's the reason I'm doing this. He labeled his new world order, the euangelion. Do you know what that translates into in English everywhere and all over the New Testament? It's the word gospel. His new world order was called the gospel. And at the time of the writing of this book of Luke, where Luke is giving us this narrative of the birth of Christ, the birthday of Caesar Augustus divided the calendar. It marked the end of the year and it marked the beginning of the next. It's Stunning, but here's the thing. Luke expects you already to know that, and he's expecting that you're going to make all these connections as you come to the story. So I'm I'm kind of trying to fill in the blanks. But it's important because he begins the narrative of the birth of Jesus, and for that matter, the narrative of the entirety of the life of Jesus Christ by calling to mind all of the glory of Caesar Augustus. He's saying, see it all and keep it in mind because now I'm going to tell you about a different king and a different glory. I'm going to tell you about a king who wasn't born in a palace. He was born in a cave with really great acoustics. But that's about all it had going for it. Who was born not to royalty, but to peasants, not to trumpets, to the neighing of horses, to the lowing of cattle, to the bleeding of sheep, to the scurrying of mice, not to the smell of roses, but to the smell of manure, swaddling clothes is what he wore. In a stone feeding trough with, you know, I mean, whatever the best hay we got is that's his crib. And yet, who is the real Son of God? Isn't that interesting? It's like he's taking everything in our world and he's just turning it around, isn't it? And yet, who is the real savior of the world? See the reversal? The one whose gospel actually saves and the one who will not just usher in a new world order someday. Now, that's not big enough for this king born in the stable, born in the cave. He will usher in a brand new world. A world that will never end. And parenthetically, in case you haven't noticed, his birthday doesn't just merely divide a year. What it does instead is it divides all of human history everywhere on our planet. It's awesome. Guy Caesar's peace and prosperity ended a long time. His new world order long since failed. His gospel spells good news for absolutely not one person on the planet today. And raise your hand if you know his birthday. Anybody? If you're in the back, I can't see you. I know there are history professors here tonight and all your students are going. (laughs) So don't let them down. Just lie if you have to. I won't call on you. September 23. Now raise your hand if you know the day that we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ each year. If the person sitting next to you drove you here and didn't raise their hand, take the keys. All right? Do not let them take you home. Whose kingdom really matters? Whose glory really endures? And in this life and in the next, whose glory endures? And what are you living for? Kind of an interesting thought, isn't it? Luke begins his story with Caesar Augustus in Luke 2, beginning in verse 1. He says, Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, there he is, that a what, because this is a really important word, believe it or not, that a census would be taken of all the inhabited earth. He's king of the world, he's going to count his people. This was the first, up. Oh, here it is again, census taken while Quirinius, try that one three times fast, was governor of Syria, and everyone was on his way to register for the, oh, three times now, census each to his own city. Here's the deal. Luke is an artist. He paints with words. He's very careful. Every word matters. He's used this word three times in a very small space. You've got to stop and go, why? Because this too is part of the comparison that he's having you make. He's compared kingdoms. He's compared glory. Now he's looking at power. He's zeroing down on some things. Caesar Augustus declares a census. Why does Caesar Augustus declare a senate? So that he can take some more money from his citizens. Bottom line, he wants to count them all up, do his taxing districts differently, more effectively, collect more tax revenue. A census is designed to take from you. He's a king who takes, but that's really not why he does it. He does it because the Sovereign Lord had spoken 700 years before the birth of Jesus through the prophet Micah and said, Jesus Christ will be born in Bethlehem, and Joseph and Mary did not get the memo. So they had no plans on going to Bethlehem until the Lord God has Caesar Augustus declare a census. So who's then in charge? And not just of world affairs. But who's in charge of your affairs? I mean, think about this for a minute. God disrupts the entire world to move two people 80 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And granted, she was nine months pregnant, so it would take the move of a whole world perhaps to get her to ride a donkey that far. But really, not just of world affairs, of your affairs. He governs over your life too. He moves things in your life too. How is He moving in your life? What did He move to get you to come here? Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria and everyone was on his way. They all had to go to their hometown to register for the census, each to his own city, including Joseph and his pregnant wife Mary and an 80-mile donkey ride. And here's the deal, you know, because they didn't have a cell phone, and they didn't have the Internet, and there was no travelocity. They couldn't book a room. And they were peasants. So they roll into town, and there's nowhere to stay, so they take what they can get. They get a cave with really great acoustics. And they gave birth to King Jesus amidst the neighing of horses and the lowing of cattle and the bleating of sheep and the scurrying of mice. And you know what happens next, right? Verse 8, it says, in the same region, actually only about a mile to a mile and a half away. The tour guide points that out, remember? And if you look to the left, you'll see the fields of the shepherds. It's not far. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over the flock by night. Now, don't miss this because Luke's an artist. He's painting with his words. He's real careful about them. He says, And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before who? Them, the shepherds. And the glory of the Lord then shone around who? Them, the shepherds. And they, the shepherds, were terribly frightened, but the angel said to good grief, it's, it's them again. It's the shepherds. Don't be afraid. For behold, I bring, this is so significant, you shepherds, good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for who? For you shepherds, a Savior. It was Christ the Lord. You know, we all grow up playing parts in Christmas plays, and everybody kind of likes being the shepherd, particularly the boys, because you get the staff, and it's got the hook on the end, and you can hook your buddy and stick people in the rear, you know, and you don't have a lot of lines, so it's kind of a low deal. And... It's cool to be the shepherds. Not in Jesus' day. The Shepherds were some of the biggest lowlifes in that whole society. They were some of the biggest lowlifes in the whole world. If you would have kind of categorized people and then just pulled out sort of the top three most notorious sinners in that culture, in no particular order, it would sound something like shepherds, tax collectors, and maybe prostitutes in there. The angels come with a message. It's about a king whose job is to do what? What is the job of a king? It is to save his people. It's a salvation message that they claim, at least, is for all people, but the all-wise God have them deliver it to the biggest sinners in town. You know why? I mean, he didn't call to tell me, okay? I'm speculating, but I think it makes sense. Because He knows that throughout the ages, even today, that there are going to be people who hear that message of a, mess, of a Savior for all people, and they're going to look around and go, I don't know, maybe for that guy, maybe for those people. But Lord, clearly, you could not be talking to me. He's talking to you. He's talking to me. Do you know how I know that? Because He declared it to a group of shepherds. amazing. And hey, they got the message. You know how I know that? Because they ran like on fire to the checkpoint. They got out their passports, you know, and they had to go through the pat down here because they were like the most disreputable people on the planet. So the Israeli guards patted them down and then they raced and, you know, and they ducked through the humble door and they walked and they stood in a big line and they consoled themselves because they were going to finally get to see. It didn't work that way that day, did it? But they did run all the way to the king who is so great that he could save even them, and even you, and even me. So all of that to say, if you do go to Israel, I highly recommend going to Bethlehem. But don't leave that church until you see the caves. And if you go, I have Ibrahim's card. He's phenomenal. I love that guy. wish he could be here tonight. But if He's your guide, then after leading you in a rousing rendition of joy to the world, which you will hope never ends, He will preach the gospel to you. Do you know what He'll say? It's brilliant. He'll remind you of something that every one of us, when we're honest, already knows, and that is that our hearts are a lot like that cave. Kind of rough. Kind of dirty. By nature frankly, averse to light, dark, full of all kinds of wild things that we've tethered and rolled up in there and all of the fun stuff that they bring along with them. And yet, the king is so great that he makes even that kind of place holy. Guys, that's where he's born just like he can be born in you. And the cool thing is, you know, when you invite him to be born in you, when you come and go, "Uh, I do need salvation. I do need to be forgiven and made clean and new. What you discover about your heart is that it has really great acoustics. For the praise and for the honor and for the glory of the King. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this glorious night. We thank you for the ability to sing, Lord, for cause for rejoicing. And we thank you for a Savior. God, we thank you that the transcendent God of the universe entered into humanity as a baby. And there's nothing more approachable than that. That he is a benevolent king who doesn't take. He gives and all he takes is our sin, which he then nails to a tree and washes away with his blood that we might be made new, that we might be brought into his family. And God, that we might share in his eternal glory and kingdom. And so, Father, we have much to be thankful for, no matter what's happening in life, if we have Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that we have Christ. And, Father, if anyone here does not know the Lord, I pray that they would humble themselves before Him, walk through the humble door in their heart, if you will, confess that they are fallen and sinful and they cannot help themselves, and claim the God-man who died upon a cross that they might be forgiven. I pray these things in Jesus' name and for His glory only. Amen.